Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Barbara Streisand's directorial debut, Yentl, 1983, is the adaptation of a 1975 stage play co-written by Isaac Bashevis Singer and Leah Napalin, based on Singer's short story, Yentl, the Yeshiva Boy, published in 1962. The movie opens in 1904 when Yentl, a young woman, is being raised by her widowed father in a Polish shtetl. He's a prominent rabbi who secretly teaches her the Talmud, defying local custom, causing her to feel pinned down beneath the patriarchal organization of Ashkenazi society. When her father dies, she cuts her hair and leaves town in the guise of a boy, using the name Anshul after her dead brother, and she is accepted into a yeshiva to study the Talmud. Complications ensue when she, Yentl, as Anshul, falls in love with another male student, Avigdor, Mandy Patinkin, who is in love with a local woman, Haras, Amy Irving, with whom Anshul becomes entangled before leaving town in the original story and play still cross-dressing to enter another yeshiva, but to America in the movie as a woman. The backstory of Streisand's efforts to make Yentl have been well covered in the entertainment press, and the central point is that Streisand went all in for Singer's story. As a highly paid, much lauded entertainer, she used her wealth and professional network as collateral, yielding Yentl, one of her long career's several lodestones, after years of careful organization, unhappy disappointment, and much hard work. Yentl is, therefore, the multi-leveled story of both Streisand and Yentl, each of whom recognize the limitation of strict gender roles acting against non-conformers, and they both find ways to overcome obstacles through devotion to passion above all other considerations. In Yentl's case, that passion is a life of the mind as a Talmudic scholar, untethered from domestic duties like cooking, cleaning, and procreation. For Streisand, it is the embodiment of Yentl's problems in a Jewish-American woman's effort to make Yentl a mediocre entertainment but terrific art object that provides a nostalgic glimpse of several streams in American public life, from the movie's debut to the perpetual now as we consider the gravity of star power. The queering of Yentl may be the most obvious angle to first engage the text. Not for a moment do we buy Yentl as Anshul. In the language of drag and transphilia, she doesn't pass. Taking the story's required leap of faith, though, submitting to the nearly wall-to-wall presentation of Streisand as Yentl as Anshul, we can find ways to enjoy watching Anshul uncover how to be a man, newly subjected to the rigors and power of insulated patriarchy from which Yentl is otherwise excluded as the natural woman she truly is. When Yentl falls in love with Avigdor, we see how the brotherly feeling between them morphs along a constant paddling between heterosexual and homosexual love. Something important appears here, too. Same-sex friendships don't require eros, true, but close friendships do imply lines of intimacy that line up nicely with traditional courtship, including the acquisition of trust, confidence, and mutual pleasure. While playing the part of Anshul, Yentl clearly enjoys being with Avigdor, and Avigdor 
clearly enjoys being with Yentl. The natural fit of the two performers is harmonious enough that this viewer longed for them to duet, but to no avail. Their relationship begins as schoolyard mentorship, since Avigdor is the older, more experienced yeshiva scholar who has survived the suicide of his unbearded younger brother, another source of interest in Anshul, who likewise wears no beard. Things quickly advance through stages of homoerotic tension and attraction, which nearly blossoms into homosexual contact in several scenes of close physical play. The ironic position we occupy in these comic sequences, whether Avigdor attempts to engage Anshul with wrestling, argument, or skinny dipping, through which Yentl is defiantly modest and bound up under her suit, is an affirmation of the underlying romantic ideal. We know that Anshul is really Yentl, an unconventional female beauty, played by an unconventionally beautiful woman, and this knowledge relieves the heterosexual panic of seeing two men kiss. At the same time, we still want Avigdor to romance Anshul, because the two are so clearly peas in a pod. If only they could find a way to live openly and together, they would present one of the great couples in movies. What are all these new sensations? What's the secret they reveal? I'm not sure I element of Yentl is doubled up once Anshul agrees to marry Avigdor's lady love, Hadas. At this point in the narrative, Anshul wants two pleasures in life, a life spent studying the Talmud, otherwise verboten to women, hence Yentl's intense focus on reading and argument, and romance with Avigdor, despite his reactionary gynophobia, including his humorous temerity in one scene wherein he admits that he doubts whether women have private thoughts of consequence. Anshul's willingness to marry Hadas is wrapped up with Avigdor's fantasy that his best friend, Anshul, will keep his romantic ideal, Hadas, close, so the three of them can enjoy a menage a trois, albeit one complicated by the rules of property and marriage in the shtetl. That Avigdor would play the cuckold isn't directly addressed, but we can imagine the experience of these unhappy people. Avigdor's surprise at finding two ports in the family harbor and two disappointed women forced to ignore what they hold most dear in the world. Plans evolve as Anshul fails to consummate the marriage, seeing that Hadas remains in love with Avigdor, which is better for Yentl, who isn't ready to reveal her crime of concealment or make love with a woman. Gradually, Yentl, as Anshul, encourages Hadas to think independently, to study the Talmud, to form her own identity apart from Anshul, much like how Yentl was raised by her father, and in this way Hadas loses interest in Avigdor to fall fully in love with this remarkably sensitive, progressive, and curious man called Anshul. And, like the earlier same-sex experimentation between Anshul and Avigdor, Yentl winks at us when Hadas attempts to finally seduce Anshul after many nights sleeping in separate beds, resulting in a single kiss that we easily interpret from Yentl's point of view as sisterly particularly because a few scenes later she reveals herself to Avigdor before reconciling him to Hadas and setting sail for America. What's wrong with wanting more If you can fly that soar With all there is Why settle for 
Can we believe in this ending of new world renewal? Should we accept that after all she's been through, Yenta will make it to New York, a single Eastern European woman without material wealth, and she will somehow rise up from the immigrant stew to find her way into a life of thinking, reading, argument, and leadership? What makes this conclusion all the more troublesome is how Yentl assumes a complicated aesthetic of realist design that nonetheless breaks apart for those Streisandian pipes in several oddly standalone fantasy musical sequences. In fact, Streisand's people dress appropriately and the props match our Life magazine impressions of the old world and the technology agrees with our perception of a time before automobiles. Further complicating these details of period authenticity, we access Yentl's consciousness through musical interludes and songs she sings on screen to her deceased father. Papa, can you hear me? Papa, can you see me? Papa, can you find me in the night? Papa, are you near me? Papa, can you hear me? Papa, can you help me not be frightened? She also sings, in voiceover, about Avigdor and Hadass and the life they seem fit to lead among others with similar values, since no one else hears her but us. No wonder he likes it. It's perfect this way. Who wouldn't want someone who fusses and flatters? Who you? makes you feel that you're all that matters? Whose only aim in life is to serve you and make you think she doesn't deserve no wonder it's all right. he loves it happens what all the time. could <laughs> he do if I were a man I would too let's try dessert yes the disintegration of the film's overall realism extends to the soft light often shown upon Streisand's face in the handful of later sequences when she escapes the mask of being Anshul, and we see the movie star with her pearly whites and painted toenails, a picture of idealized womanhood circa 1983 rather than 1904. These moments are cringe-worthy, but they are each a part of the design of seeing how a global superstar in both music and movies can use her image and sound to correct gaps in social memory. Which is to say that Yentl is a fantasy reconstruction of Streisand's ethnic heritage as a Jewish woman who inserts something false-ish, the story of Yentl, over the top of something true, the story of European Jewry in the early 20th century, in order to remake the face of history. Reasons for making this effort are threefold. One, Streisand's ego and gameplay with narcissism as a movie's focal point is no small spectacle, especially for fans of the artist who number in the millions globally. Two, overcoming antisemitism generally, since the story of Jewishness has, for centuries, been tied to immigration and patterns of assimilation. And three, overcoming the indescribable experience of the Holocaust. To express a pre-Holocaust Jewish experience in Eastern Europe, Streisand's crew paid much attention to the layout and feel of Yentl's shtetl and to the background and countryside around Bakawa, 
Poland, the site of the yeshiva Avigdor and Anshel attend. The crew used backstrops in Czechoslovakia and sets made in London to extend the look and feel of the scenery, and the overall effect is to think of an idealized place where a group of people, who are all Jewish people, are normalized as the general population. When I was in Lublin studying last week, yes, yes. Well, I found this wonderful book. Can you believe the price of cabbage? <laughs> For instance, uh, he gives 25 different interpretations of Genesis alone. Best in the market, This frame is offered to us simply and no reference is made to the social programming, violence, and long habit of pushing Jewish people into certain areas and regions and away from others. In this way, Yentl naturalizes the Jewish story as a human story, since the characters on screen are never ridiculed for their heritage, ethnicity, habit, language, or belief. They are just people. At the same time, the score by Michelle Legrand with lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman allows Streisand as Yentl to sing about yearning and love, self-actualization and wonder, all themes with a universal bent that are given peculiar resonance when attached to the story of a cross-dressing woman. That this woman believes in God means that Yentl unselfconsciously portrays religiosity via access to the written word, indeed the word of God, as a totally urgent matter for all people to consider seriously and without apology. The energy of the story, then, is basic literacy and not so much a spiritual sense of union with the deity or deities. Yentl is characteristic of a long-present notion in a more populated, technology-rich, and specialized world where knowledge is power that stems from knowing the Word. But God is present in this movie. Avigdor and Anshul argue over scripture, not just to argue, which is a Jewish stereotype, but to avail themselves of the wisdom of the ages and so prepare for the roles of leadership they assume will be their lot because they have been permitted the very male luxury of careful study and judgment. It's a pleasure to see Anshul lost in her piles of books, to see the yeshiva at work in spirited disagreement, to acknowledge how important being smart is on screen to both Yentl and Streisand. In the end, the thought experiment I couldn't escape after screening Yentl is imagining what Yentl, Avigdor, and Haras would be like 30 years onward, when all three would be in their late 40s or early 50s, when the 20th century would have advanced steadily onto its midpoint. Having toured the Lower East Side Tenement Museum in Manhattan, I can readily see two outcomes for Yentl. She would either have died from tuberculosis or some other communicable disease associated with the urban squalor of new immigrant enclaves in New York City, or she would have submitted to a traditional marriage where her personal hope for self-fulfillment would be expressed through the ambitions she has for however many children her reproductive system would yield to a hard-working, non-English-speaking husband. For Avigdor and Hadas, two Jewish people living in Poland, the matter is much clearer. They would be dead having been murdered by the Nazis during the final solution, and here is the point where Streisand's star power matters most in defining the quality of this mixed-value entertainment. Yentl is a fantasy, 
about one woman's emancipation journey as happy ending in some small bid to balance the tragedy of millions of men and women just like her who were exterminated as so many statistical data points. Between 6 and 11 million dead, the history books tell us, and enforcing our identification with Streisand as Yentl as Anshul and back again, Yentl gives us a brilliant coda beyond the Second World War and its artifact of destruction that has the courage to celebrate individual success. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!